So, because Zach already read the passage, I'm not going to reread it. <laughs> I'm not going to do you like that. Now, that's, that's why I had him read it, just so that we would uh, be able to work through it and think about it on the front end. So, uh, join me in prayer, and we're going to open up God's Word and study it together. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we love you, and uh, we thank you for the hope that is held out in front of us. That heaven is beautiful because you're there. And what a joy it will be when our faith will be made sight. Well, all of the things that we have longed for, and even the inner longings that we do not know that we're longing for, that one day those things will be our reality. That we will see you and behold you. That we will be able to dwell in your tabernacle. That we will know ourselves and we will not know sin. That sin will be thrown away and Satan will be banished and there is no suffering, there is no sorrow. I do pray that we would fix our minds and our hearts upon that which is unseen. I do pray now that your word would enter into our hearts, that we would live repentant lives for your glory and for your honor. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, there are three men that I want to talk to you about, uh, and they all have something in common. And the first guy is a guy that you might know by the name of Martin Luther, not to be confused with Martin Luther King, right? So Martin Luther, which some of you, most of you may know that um, back in the 1600s, through one act, his entire life was changed forever, that he spent a great majority of his life in exile, that he was excommunicated by the church, that he was kidnapped and many wanted to kill him and his life was not the same. Now, another guy by the name of St. Augustine or Augustine, however you want to say it, he was an early church father from Northern Africa. And there was one piece of writing that he wanted inscribed next to his bed. And it would be this piece of writing that he would see every morning when he woke up. And it would be the last thing he saw every night before he went to bed that he shares something in common with Martin Luther. Think about Ezra, that we're at the end of his book. And think about what we've talked about over the past several months where Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to obey it and to teach it. And Ezra set his heart to leave Babylon and to go and change God's people in Jerusalem. That that was his, that was, that's what he wanted to do. Here's the thing. There is no Ezra chapter 11 that Ezra is going to come back up one more time in the book of Nehemiah. But by and large, this is the end of his public ministry. I mean, there's more stuff that he's doing. But in terms of what the Holy Spirit wanted us to read as you get to the end of Ezra. It's this passage right here. Now, what is Martin Luther? What changed his life? What was he willing to die for? What does he have in common with St. Augustine or Augustine? And what do they have in common with Ezra? Well, you know the answer. It's repentance. That when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door in Wittenberg, that the very first two or three of his um, theses had to do with repentance. 
He says, when our Lord and Savior said that the Christian life is one of repentance, he willed that the entirety of the Christian life be one of repentance. That of all the things that St. Augustine could have had inscribed on his wall, you want to know what it was? It was Psalm 32, the psalm that Zach just read, blessed is the man whom the Lord does not count his iniquity against him. Blessed is the man in whom there is no deceit. And it is that exact passage where David actually says, my heart was dried up. My bones were breaking. But I confess my sins to the Lord. He heard me and he healed me. That this is what he wanted to see Every single morning and every single night, because he said the beginning of our humanity is knowing that we ourselves are a sin, are sinners in need of grace. And he wanted to see that every morning and every night, that not only am I a sinner, but there is grace, that not, not only am I a sinner, but there is mercy for sinners. That this is how Ezra's book ends. Think about it. He, he's not known for building the temple. That happened before he got there. Think about it. He's not building the wall. Nehemiah does that. You want to know what he did? His claim to fame throughout the rest of Israel is this scene right here where God's people are in the rain, repenting over their sins. And if we were to look at that and say, is that successful ministry? If we were to rank that according to what we think is important in our day, we would say, no way, that's not important. That's how he's remembered in God's scripture. By bringing God's people to repentance. And that's how the book ends. You want to know what God is saying? By ending this book that way, he is screaming to us. This is a big deal. Living lives of repentance is a big deal. Now, the question that I want to put before us this morning is, do we believe that? Do we embrace our own sin? Or have we gotten so clever that we don't acknowledge our guilt? Have we gotten so blinded that we don't see the holiness of God? Have we gotten so blinded that we are afraid to actually open our mouths in our pride and to actually confess our sins to our God? Or are we slick? I think this is a perfect picture of repentance. And that's why I've entitled this sermon that because I think of all the books and scenes in the Bible, this has to rank up there in my top five, right? You wanna know my top five, I can tell you later, but this is probably up there in my top five. My top five scenes, pictures of what it means to repent. And so I do hope that we believe that, but not more, that, that more than believe it, that we will actually live lives of repentance. We'll know what that means. We'll know what that entails, and we will do so accordingly. And so I think in this passage, we're going to look at four things, and I won't give them all out, but I'll give them to you sort of one by one. I think repentance begins with faith. And so if you want to write that down, repentance begins with faith. Now, here's the thing. I think we typically think that repentance be begins with behavior. But we're going to push against that and say repentance begins with belief. 
that when belief is wrong, behavior follows suit. And so if we're going to repent and live a life that honors the Lord, we cannot fundamentally go towards correcting behavior. The, 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 the issue under the issue is ultimately an issue of belief. Misbelief breeds misbehavior. And I'm telling you, it, it happens so fast, right? It happens so fast that we don't slow down enough to see it happening. Am I the only one that sort of, I step outside of myself and look at myself, if that's even possible, right? And so I sort of, I'm over here kind of doing my thing, and then I'm, there's a part of me that wants to step outside of me and say, dude, why did you just say that? Or God, like, don't, don't believe that. Or, or should you have responded in that way? You see, like, there's sort of this, this duality going on where here I am in the flesh, like behaving and acting and living, but then stepping away from what's going on in that moment to start to ask myself questions. Like what, and, and it's not just me, it's the Holy Spirit, I think, working through me, bringing these things to remembrance. But I think oftentimes we don't do that. We get so blindsided by what's in front of us that we fail to see that before I act and do a single thing, that I'm disbelieving something. And that disbelief or misbelief, that is what's causing me to misbehave. There's a, a, a movie called Inside Out. And if you're a parent, I, you probably, who, who's seen it, right? All right, so a lot of you. Good, that's good. So you know who Riley is, right? Riley's a little girl who's been moved from Minnesota who moves to, is it San Francisco or California somewhere? At San Francisco. And so she's, it's a traumatic experience, right? And so the, the, the grand, the majority of the movie is told from the vantage point of her internal operating system, right? And so it shows little Riley as a little girl and all of a sudden it shows you joy. Joy springs up and joy is this little character that's kind of inside of her heart. And so Joy thinks that she's the only character relegating her emotions. And then guess what? Sadness comes up. And then sadness thinks that it's just the two of them. And then fear comes up. And then fear, and then fear, then there's like caution, and then there's anger. And so what you have kind of in her heart, it's all of these emotions trying to kind of coexist in child development. Well, then they show the parents, and the parents have their own grown versions of like anger and joy and sadness. And in a healthy heart, those things kind of work together, right? That there's an appropriate fear that we should all have. There's an appropriate response to anger that we should all have, that those things in and of themselves are not wrong. But there's a scene and it's around the 27 minute mark. <laughs> I, I look, I went and looked. There's a scene. Now, that's the backdrop. There's a scene when mom is at the table, dad is at the table, and Riley's at the table. And in that scene, Riley's had a horrible day. Dad is working long hours. None of their furniture from Minnesota has made it. She's in a new school. She's just, I mean, her world is getting rocked right in her core, and they, they, they visualize it. But there's this powerful scene where she's at the table, and her mom the mothering instinct is asking her, Riley, how's your day? And then Riley's hurt and grief is starting to control the inside and Joy is out trying to fix stuff. And so she's getting really somber. Well, the moment mom asks her a question, anger kind of takes control, right? 
anger is driving the conversation now. So rather than, than response like Riley would normally respond, she's irritated. And so she lashes out at her mother. And so all of a sudden, the mother's looking at her. Then the mother's looking at the dad. And it has a picture of the dad in his mind looking at a hockey game. He's detached, right? <laughs> He's just detached. He's not, even, he's not even present at the table. And so all of a sudden, this mothering, the mother, her mothering instinct moves over, and then her anger gets at the driver's seat. And so he pushes the button, and then she lashes out at the husband. And now the husband is irritated at the mother, and then Riley, is her, her anger person kind of takes over again. And then before you know it, the anger, she just sasses back at her dad, like sass, and then, and then his anger button, it just goes hard. He's like, okay, I detect sass, I detect sass, DEFCOM 1, and he just like rams it up. And all of a sudden, like, he just goes in on her. She, you know, throws her hands down and storms from the table. What I love about that scene is this. It slows down what's happening in the heart enough that we would see the struggle. It's slowing down enough that we would see that she doesn't just beat the table to beat the table. There's buildup. There are things happening behind the scenes so that when she finally acts, it's because some things have happened right here. I mentioned that to you because I think it oftentimes when we're tempted, we don't think that there is a battle that's happening right here. And that battle is, will I believe God in this moment? Will I trust God in this moment? And here's what happens. The moment that we start to disbelieve in the promises or the commandments of God, that that's where the initial battle is. You know what's happening? Once that control mechanism right here in our hearts starts to excuse or dismiss or belittle the commandments of the Lord, it's we're gone. And so we're not just blindly sinning, right? That there's something beneath the behavior that's causing us, that's getting us there. And it's in that moment, I'm not believing that that is off limits. In this moment, I'm not believing that it is better to respond with peace and in anger. In this moment, I'm not believing that it's better to put money in than to hoard it for myself. In that moment, you see, it's always a battle to believe something about God that shows itself in behavior. Therefore, when you look at the passage, notice how Ezra... And Shechaniah in verse 2, notice what Shechaniah says. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, he addressed Ezra. Look at what he says. We have broken faith with our God and then have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Do you see what he just said? The reason we married these women who don't worship you is because we don't believe you're good. And we don't believe you have our best interest at stake by forbidding us to marry them. It wasn't the behavior alone. They disbelieved in their God and broke faith with him. 
Look at what Ezra says when Ezra is recounting. Look at look in verse six. Look at what Ezra is mourning over. Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the behavior of the exiles. No, it's a faith issue. The faithlessness of the exiles. It's a faith issue first. And then notice what he says in verse 10. Look at what he says in verse 10. When he addresses them, Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and then married foreign women. And in marrying foreign women and breaking faith with your covenant God, you are increasing the guilt of Israel. Do you see the correlation? It's an unbelief, misbelief, leading to misbehavior, leading to guilt, righteous guilt. Therefore, if we're going to repent, you know where we can't go first? We can't go to behavior modification first. That's not where we start. We don't start with modifying behavior. Ezra would say that the ultimate issue, the ultimate place to start is belief. What are you believing in this moment about your God, about sin, about self, about that thing? It's a belief issue first. Therefore, if we're going to repent, we have to go back to our faith. What am I not believing? What am I believing? Now, here's the question. If repentance starts with belief, then what two things must we believe to begin repenting? The first thing, and we have to believe this, we have to believe that God is holy. And we cannot set that apart. He is exalted. He is righteous that no man can see him and live. We have to believe that he is righteous, that his wrath is real. We have to believe that he hates our sin. We have to believe that he hates it so much that he would not spare his own son. That unless we go there to that place where we see how serious our sin is, you know what we'll do with our sin? We'll play with it. And we'll toy with it and we'll dibble and dab with it and we'll excuse it. We'll do everything except kill it. And so if we're going to live a repentant life, it begins first and foremost with believing you are high, you are holy, you are righteous and you hate sin. You got to believe it. And that's why the exiles, look at what the exiles are saying. Look at verse 14. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Go to the end of the verse. Until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter. You see that? Fierce wrath. That's how they're processing what they deserve. They deserve the fierce wrath of God. They're believing that that is real again. But notice what else they're believing in that same verse. But that this wrath can be turned away from us. Look at it. Look at it again. At the end of verse 14, those two things are held in tension. 
Look at what Shechaniah says in verse 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and married foreign peoples. But look at that last clause. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Do you see the two things that we have to believe if we're going to begin this path of repentance? I'm sinful and I deserve judgment. But you are loving and kind and abounding in steadfast love. What happens if we don't believe both? If I don't believe that I deserve this, that sin is small, I will minimize it and minimalize it. And I will actually begin to think that it's OK for me to live my life how I want to live. And so God's character, when we see him in his right gaze, it protects us from that. But here's the thing. If I don't believe that God is merciful and kind, I won't turn back to him. I'll run away from him. If I don't think he welcomes sinners, I will not turn back. And so the beginning of repentance is not behavior. The beginning of repentance is belief, a proper belief in the character of God. Righteous, holy, merciful, kind. And we hold those things together. And in a normal Christian life, you know what? You want to know what, what's, what's sufficient to keep that upon us? Just by regularly reading God's word. Just by reading through books of the Bible, you will encounter God in all of his splendor and not the God that you and I want to worship, but God as he rightly is. You will see him inflict judgment upon people and you will see him pardon people. You will see him not sparing his own son and then you will see him giving, giving the righteousness of Christ to you that you might be righteous. You will see him in all of his glory. Amen. But if we're going to live repentant lives... We got to believe this about God, believe this about ourselves, believe this about sin, believe this about pardon and see that there is one place where these two things meet. And that's on the cross of Christ. Amen. You don't think God cares about sin. He slaughters his own son. You don't think God cares about righteousness and giving you mercy. He sends his own son. Repentance begins with belief. The second thing we see is that repentance requires confession. But I'm not sure if you looked at it in Ezra chapter 10, verse 1, but notice how it's laid out. While Ezra prayed and made what? What did he make? Y'all can talk back to me. He made confession, right? If you go back to Ezra chapter 9, when he meets them in their sin, the first thing he does is falls to his face and starts to confess. Now, here's how we would normally read chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered out to him out of Israel, and the people wept bitterly. So right there, if you just stop it right there with our human eyes, we would look at, chapter, at verse 1 and 2, and we would assume that just because they're gathering around Ezra, just because they're crying and weeping, that that is repentance. And notice what Ezra tells them. You haven't gone far enough. 
Look at what he says right down there in verse 10. And Ezra the priest stood up and he said to them, you have broken faith. You have married foreign women. You have increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, to the God of your fathers. Do you see what Ezra does? Your crying is not sufficient. Your weeping and coming around me is not sufficient. Sin has been committed and sin must be confessed. And so he models it. That repentance, that confession, vocalizing, saying audibly the, the offenses that we've committed against God and against others, it needs to come to light. It's right here in the text. And notice what it says in verse 12. Then all of the assembly answered with a loud voice. Notice a loud voice like they're getting vocal now. Now, do you remember our call to worship? I talked a little bit about it, but blessed is the one who, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. These are real blessings, real grace, real mercy. But notice what David says. While these things are real, that they were not experienced by him. Why? It says, because I kept silent about my sin. And notice what silence did to him. It says, my bones wasted away. I groaned all day long. Why? Because the hand of God was heavy upon me day and night, and his strength was dried up as in the heat of the summer. You hear what David is saying? I was heavy. I was like trying to run an Olympic race with ankle weights on. I was trying to run a marathon, and I was dehydrated. I can't do this. I can't compete. Until what? Until I went to the Lord, and I confessed my sins. I laid my iniquity out before him. He heard me. He answered my cry. David says, blessed is the man in whom there is no deceit, and what was happening in David's life is he was being deceitful with the Lord, sinning, but not saying it. Sinning against God, but not confessing sins to God. And the spirit of the Lord, the hand of the Lord was on him. See, we might think conviction is a bad thing. No more than we can say the sensation of pain is a bad thing. You do know that if we did not have sensations for pain, you could leave your arm on a fire and it will burn it completely up. Our nerve endings that register pain, they actually protect us from damage. And here is what David is saying. I was in sin. And your spirit came upon me and you made me heavy and you made me dry. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing that I can feel guilt and shame over sins. But what can I not do? I cannot just outthink my way out of this. I cannot just get up and start behaving. No, the hand of the God is the hand of God is still heavy. Notice what he says. I had to vocalize it. I had to say something. Now, here's the thing. I, I'm trying to figure out what's the big deal about confessing. 
Like, why does God say confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved? Why is the scripture replete with confess, 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 say it, vocalize it? Why can't we just outthink ourselves and say, you know what, I did this wrong right here in my mind. Now let me get my life together, right? Let me just, all right, I, I feel bad. I'm, I'm weeping and I'm crying, but why isn't that sufficient? Why must I say this? Why is that important? Because our sins happen in the context of a relationship. You try this. The next time you offend your wife, your husband, your kids, your boss, your coworker, you try it because you're going to do it at some point. We're all sinners, right? So it might be tonight. It might be tomorrow. It might be next week. But trust me, you will hurt somebody and you will sin against somebody. And here's what you do. Try not to acknowledge it. Just try to act like it's cool. You know, try to sin against your wife, right? And come right home and just assume the role, right? Cook dinner, sweep the floor, do everything you're going to do. You know what she's going to say? Dude, what's this right here, though? We have not addressed this right here. Why? Because sin happened in the context of a relationship. And this offense has to be acknowledged for progress to be made. I can only, I mean, I can forgive you without asking for forgiveness. So I don't want to make it seem like that there's this one and two correlation. You ask the Lord to forgive you. You know, I'm not saying that, but there is something in the scriptures about going to God. I sinned. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. It's to be a regular part of our conversation with our God where we own those things that we've done against him. Our confession is self-accusing. By accusing ourselves, we shut the mouth of Satan who is our accuser before God. We pass judgment on ourselves with our own pride, our own infidelity, our own guilt. We do this. We don't need it to come from outside. We do it ourselves. Our confession exalts God. When God says there is no one righteous, no, not one. When God says, if you confess your sins to me, I am faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. When we actually confess, we're exalting the God who hears the confession of sinners and who delights to give grace to those who will be real with him. And so there is real mercy, but it's given to real people who bring real sins and real iniquity before a real God. You can't get play grace. You can't get play mercy. Like it has to be for real. God has to have something to forgive and we lay it out. It exalts Christ. I've not come for the healthy I've come for the sick. You see, like, the, and it's so counterintuitive because we're, we're taught and bred and it, it, it's, it's, it's just something in our culture, right? Where don't show weakness. Don't own your own faults. Don't be vulnerable. Don't be open. Don't go ask for forgiveness. Play Mr. Tough Guy, right? And Jesus says, not in my kingdom. It works differently. 
confession, owning our sin. Have you ever felt that? I, I have a few times, several times. Or like I've done something maybe against my wife or against someone else. And this thing just kind of stays there. And it doesn't, it just, it doesn't go away. There's just this heaviness, this, this burden, this, this backpack of bricks that I'm walking through life with because I won't own what I did. And have you tasted the freedom of just taking it off and saying, you know what? I'm sorry. That's what God is inviting us into. To be open and honest and vocal with him. The, fourth, the third thing we see is that re repentance requires action. That it cannot remain in the heart or on the lips. That if it is real, it will show itself in changed behavior. And notice what Ezra says. He says, make confession to the Lord in verse 11. And notice what he says at the end of that sentence in verse 11. And do his will. You see that? Make confession, and look at the end of that. Make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Look at what they say in verse 12. Then all the people answered with a loud voice, it is so, we must do as you have said. Do you see? He tells them to confess, and then he tells them to do. Do exactly what God has told you to do. Now, here's the part that is, it's hard for me to read it. Because what were they to do? It says they were to separate themselves from the people of the land and your farm wives. And here we're meeting that if repentance is hard. That can you imagine being a father going back home to your son, because at the end of this chapter, notice what this says in verse 44, all these had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. And so in this commandment to behave in a way that honors the Lord, that obeying the Lord meant separating yourself from the people of the land and your foreign wives, imagine walking to your wife and saying, we can't be married. Imagine looking at your son or your daughter in the eye, saying, I can't, you can't stay here. Now, I want to get into the ethical side of this later, but I want you to feel the weight of what it would have meant to obey the Lord in this. There is no easy way out. If you stay in sin and rebel, your bones dry up and you die. That if you send your wives and your children away, a part of you dies. And so I think we have to do away with this notion that repentance will always feel good and that it will be easy. It will not. You got 112 families torn up. And here's why I have a hard time with it, right? I hear scripture saying, God, you care for the orphan. 
I hear scripture saying, God, you care for the widow. And here in this passage, God is telling them, separate yourselves from them. How can you care for the orphan? How can you care for the widow when you are making orphans and widows in this very text? I totally get it. The opposition you see in verse 15. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Josiah, the son of Tikva, opposed this, and Meshulam, and Shabbatiah, and the Levites supported them. Not everyone wanted to follow through with this plan. I totally get in verse 7, in order to get the people out to even do this, look at what they have to do in verse 7. A proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem that all the returned exiles should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come in three days by the order of the officials and the elders, all of his property should be forfeited and he himself be banned from the congregation of the exiles. I totally get it. Why? Who wants to give up their wife? Who wants to throw away their kids? Who wants to do that? I get why people are protesting. I get why they have to use force. Because repenting in this moment is painful. Now, I'm going to take a detour. Detour over here, right? So let's leave this right here. Few things. One, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what does Paul say? He says, if you're a believing husband, you're married to an unbelieving wife, Paul does not say divorce them. Rather, Paul says stay with them. If they want to be married to you, stay. Matter of fact, he says your children are clean through one believing parent, right? That's what 1 Peter says. I think it's 1 Peter chapter 3 where Peter is wrestling with a woman who is married to an unbelieving husband and he says, win him over with your conduct. So it, on some level, it does seem that in the New Testament, we don't do this kind of stuff right here. That it does seem that when Christ has come, he has sort of put down some of these Old Testament practices that adhered specifically and uniquely to Israel. And in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, God says, no, if you're married to an unbelieving spouse and they want to be with you, you stay because the Holy Spirit can work through you. And there's a passage in the Old Testament that it made me think about it. I don't know if you remember that passage in Genesis where uh, this isn't the first time. It's in Genesis 21. You can go back and read it later. But you notice what happened in Genesis 21? That Abraham had been promised that he would have a child through Sarah. And because they did not wait and because they did not believe in the promises of God, what did they do? They took matters in their own hands. And so they come up with this plan. Hey, you go marry Hagar, who's an Egyptian who kind of falls under these people that that uh, Ezra's talking about. You go marry the Egyptian servant and you have a child and your child through her will be the heir. And that child's name was Ishmael. Well, you know what? God kept his promise. And later on, he came back and gave them Isaac. So now you got baby mama drama right here in Abraham's household. Right. You got this woman he married. He had a kid with that his wife told him to go lay with. And now you got his son through the wife that God gave him. And now there's tension in the household. And you know what happened when Isaac was weaned? Ishmael was poking at him, making fun at him. And Mama Bear saw it, Sarah. And you know what she says? Send that woman and that child away. 
And you know what? It greatly displeased Abraham. And you know what happened? God came to Abraham and says, do not worry. Do what your wife has asked for that child is not the heir. Now, here's our temptation. Our temptation is to think that God just kind of writes Hagar and Ishmael off and he turns all of his attention back to Isaac and back to what they're going on. But that's not the truth. When you read Genesis 31, you actually get this insert where it actually tells us how, it, how, it, how things ended. That when Hagar left, Abraham gave, gave her bread and water and they went in the wilderness and then they ran out of food. And Hagar says, we're good as dead. Let me put you in the bush because I don't want to see you starve to death. And the Lord heard the cry of Ishmael. And the Lord drew near. And the Lord stretched out water for them in the wilderness. And the Lord comes to Hagar and says, fear not. I have heard the cry of your son. Do you see what God just did in that passage? He only, like only God can do this. He was able to keep his promises to Isaac and to Abraham and to Sarah, but that did not mean that he would not be kind to Ishmael and Hagar. And that's, I think, what we see happening in the passage. We tend to read it kind of skewed, not knowing that our God is way bigger than we think and not knowing that there is biblical history in our Bibles that tells us how God cares for people who he sends away. And you see it in Genesis. And guess what? I think some of that's happening in this text. Those men were wrong and they sinned against God. And it was hard to repent. It was hard to send their wives away. But only God can maintain his own integrity. And at the same time, care for the orphan and the widow. You see how I think this is playing itself out? This does not negate the fact, though, that sending them away is painful. And if we're going to live lives of repentance, there are times when it will be hard. But it's kind of like that good heart. You know what I'm talking about? So let, let's say like you're saving to buy a house and you're a couple and you're going to eat like ramen noodles. You're going to eat beanie weenies. You're going to eat Vienna sausages. You're going to eat sardines. You know, you're going to do everything you can to like keep your budget under tack. Why? Because you know that the down payment for your house is so much better. But in the moment, right, it hurts. In the moment, you, you can't get this new car you want. In the moment, you can't buy your kids Jordans. In the moment, you cannot go eat steak and shrimp. In the moment, it actually hurts, but it's for a greater goal. You want to own a home. Repentance is like that. In the moment, it hurts. And it might be painful. But if we could see the greater goal that I am going to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so I invite you that in those areas in your lives where you need to repent and there needs to be behavioral modification and it's going to hurt, right? So it can play out in a bunch of ways, right? Let's say that some, someone in here is addicted to looking at improper things on the internet, right? 
And so you've been hiding this for a year and two years and the pain of continuing it, it hurts and dries up your soul. And the pain of coming clean, it's also intimidating. You see how there's no easy way out of that? That the way out is going to be painful, but the promise that God makes to you, I will forgive you and I will be with you in this and I will walk with you through this. What is it in your life that the Lord is putting on your heart to repent of where our behavior needs to conform to that of Christ? I pray that the Lord will give you grace to live that out. The last point, because repentance is often hard, God's people will often need assistance. The reason I had Zach go ahead and read all of those names, because that was the longest session meeting in the Bible, probably. It says that they, it says the people, the people said that this matter cannot be handled in one day, that our guilt is so big. Here's what we'll do. Find our elders and find those who lead over us and you let them fix this for us. And you know what they did? They did for two whole months. They sorted through every single family and they came up with 112 names of everyone who's guilty. And of course, everyone else probably innocent, but don't dismiss the work that the elders did in helping God's people repent. Two months, sorting through lists, knowing people by name, going to their houses, examining their marriages, looking at marriage certificates, seeing if, I mean, just can you think about how long it took for them to actually sort through all of this? Two months. There was no way for the people to do it by themselves. One of God's gifts to the covenant community to help the covenant community behave and believe and live in such a way that we're maturing in our repentance. It's through other people. So I love about this church. We actually have officers. Officers. 